just wanted to say hey and let you know what is happening here with this current project. I am doing a brief history on the monarchy of Israel to provide some background for uh, a teaching in the book of Micah that I am doing on Sundays. And so you'll hear some other voices in today's recording and in future recordings, and that's because I am recording uh, a Zoom session that I'm doing for folks who want to participate live. Uh, you may even hear some questions during the recording of these episodes. So I hope this is insightful. I hope this is valuable to you. And uh, yeah, we'll be seeing you on the other side. Heavenly Father, thanks for tonight and for some time to spend in your scripture and uh, looking at the history of the monarchy uh, in Israel. Lord, I pray as we as we spend a little time here uh, that we that we would actually you know we learn some new things and that because we do, as we turn to uh, places like Micah and the prophets, uh, that we would be changed as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, so um, it's <laughs> the the monarchy. You see him? <laughs> understanding the monarchy is uh, really important when it comes to trying to grasp the context of the prophets in particular. Uh, that those two parts of the Bible, those two, those two aspects of scripture really kind of go hand in hand. Um, and if, you know, if we had, you know, two hours, if I had two hours, three hours on a Sunday morning, uh, to, to talk at people, probably what I would do is, is go back and forth between all these different prophets and the Kings and the stories. And you have, multiple prophets, uh, you know, preaching at the same time over the course of multiple different Kings. And, and for us, you know, we look at, we, we look at these, these prophets, we look at these stories, um, and, and it can seem strange to us because we don't, as American Christians, we don't live under a King. Um, and we certainly don't have prophets in the same way that, uh, that they did uh, back uh, in in the biblical times, and so so we need to try to begin to grab some of this context, and uh, and if we do, then what happens is is it it will help us uh, gain deeper understanding for the prophets, and and the other thing it does is it will help us see. Uh, the places where their time uh, is, you know, doesn't doesn't parallel ours. Uh, it'll also help us to see the places where, you know, the times of the prophets and the kings do parallel our time. And we can see greater connections. And, and it helps us with application. It helps us, uh, you know, really, really try to grab hold of the depth of, of these prophets. So... So that's why we're we're going to spend a few weeks, uh, you know, doing this. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's helpful. Hopefully it's something that you can put in your toolbox and it will it will give you 
greater depth and uh, meaning, greater meaning uh, to the scriptures as, as you spend some time um, studying them or hearing them preached on Sunday morning or, or taught uh, elsewhere. So the monarchy, uh, we, we can't really start uh, at the, with the first king of Israel. We have to go back a little bit further and understand how we got to the king, how we got to uh, King Saul, who, who comes on the scene uh, in uh, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 9. But before we get to him, we got to go back. And we got to go back uh, to the judges. So uh, you, have, uh, you have Moses leads the people out of, of Egypt, and then he passes on leadership of the people to Joshua, who leads them through the, you know, the, the time of conquest as they are taking the promised land. Um, and then after Joshua leaves the scene, what happens is we enter into this time of the judges. And it was, there was a rhythm to the life of the people of Israel. There's a rhythm to the history of the nation. They would uh, be following and worshiping and doing things, uh, you know, under the priests and the, the Levitical priesthood. And eventually they would lose their way and they would just kind of go off the rails. They would, they would kind of lose their minds. Basically they would begin worshiping idols. They would uh, give themselves over to kind of the, the, the worship of the gods of the area. Um, and, and it would get, it would get ugly and it would get ugly pretty fast. And when that happened, uh, when, when oppression kind of rose up, when, when the people of Israel really had kind of lost, really lost the plot, God would raise up a judge. And it was under this, under a judge that, uh, there would be new military victories. There would be, uh, a return back to the faith of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There would be this, uh, th these, these renaissances of, of, of faithful worship in Israel under the judge. And then the judge would die and you'd go back into another cycle where they would lose the plot again. And uh, beginning in Judges 17, we begin to see a repeated phrase. In se Judges 17, 6, we get it the first time. In those days, Israel had no king. Repeats again in chapter 18, verse 1, and in chapter 19, verse 1. And then the book of Judges ends uh, with, with this phrase, or with this sentence. And uh, tell me if this doesn't sound a little, little like our day and age. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's, if, yeah. that doesn't, if that doesn't speak to 21st century America, I don't know what does. Uh, so this is, um, this is the setting, right? This is how judges ends. Now, the same time that Judges is happening, that these stories in the book of Judges is happening, you have uh, Ruth. The story of Ruth happens during the time of the Judges. And so even in the midst of, 
of the ups and the downs and the chaos and, uh, you know, people of God losing the plot. We have these stories like Ruth of, um, of people who are faithful, who are loyal to, to uh, the God of Israel, who are, who are practicing a faithful, uh, a faithful worship of, of God. And so Ruth is just, it's one of these beautiful stories. It's four chapters and it is, it is remarkable and beautiful and points us uh, in the direction of Christ. Ruth ends, uh, you know, laying out the genealogy of David, who is the second king of Israel. And we'll get to him uh, in a couple of weeks. So this is, this is where we pick up the story, right? Uh, we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel. The story of the kings uh, is covered in six books in our uh, English-speaking Bibles. Uh, you have 1st and 2nd Samuel, you have 1st and 2nd Kings, and you have 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Uh, Kings and Chronicles feel like very similar books. Uh, they just differ at the time that they were written, right? Um, Kings is very pessimistic, uh, and it, it really kind of highlights the the failure of the kings and the failure of the people of Israel. And so most scholars think that Kings was written first and it was written, uh, edited and put together shortly after the exile uh, that the prophets are preaching against and challenging uh, the, the people of God to, to come back to their faith. Then you have Chronicles, which scholars are pretty sure uh, was edited and put together after the remnant returned back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and that's because Chronicles is pretty optimistic and it focuses a lot on faithful worship and, uh, you know, how, how the people worshiped and how the good Kings led well. And so, uh, you get this kind of full orbed image of, of the Kings, but we have to begin we have to really begin the story of the of the monarchy with Samuel. He's the last judge, um, but he played a different role than a lot of the other judges. Uh, he was he was not only a a judge, but he also scriptures tell us was a prophet, and he also was a priest. So he carried he kind of carried with him three different offices of prophet. Uh, priest and judge, all three of these. And uh, so he's, he's the last uh, and, and final judge, and he is the one who ends up instituting the monarchy. So when was he born? Well, he was probably born in around 1100 BC. He and the judge Samson were probably, uh, you know, they, they were, they were people of of the same era. Samson was born, uh, scholars believe Samson was born shortly after Samuel. So Samuel was a child growing up um, during, during the leadership. Uh, well, he was, they were both adults. Samson and Samuel were both adults. Uh, Samuel was ministering under the, the rule of Eli, uh, the high priest at the time, uh, while, while Samson uh, was, was the acting judge uh, of Israel. So you have Samuel and Samson crossing over 
in their in their lives. Um, so it's in it's in First Samuel three twenty uh, that we catch here that he was considered a prophet. Uh, it says uh, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Verse twenty, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. Uh, and the Lord continued to appear as Shiloh. So, so he's a he's he's a prophet. He's a priest. First Samuel nine twelve through thirteen hits on his priestly duties. Uh, so, the next question that that we wrestle that we have to ask is why why didn't why didn't Israel have a king yet? Right? What what was going on here? Now, uh, one of the things that that will that we can i think infer from the text in samuel uh, is that you know god made allowances for the people to have a king but i don't i don't think god necessarily was wild about the people having an earthly king and we'll we'll get to that in a minute uh, however uh in the in the bible itself in the text uh, there is um, there is evidence that uh, the king that the king was expected. It was kind of part of kind of part of uh, the history of the people. Uh, first, we have Genesis uh, forty nine verse ten. Uh, it's this is Jacob blessing his sons, right? Uh, so he's gathered around uh, the sons of Jacob. And uh, so the 12, the, the, the ones who'd be the, become the 12, uh, 12 nations of Israel, right? 12 tribes of Israel. Um, starts, we'll start in verse 9 about Judah. It says, You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he, until he to him it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So we have, as early as Genesis 49.10, uh, a look towards the, the monarchy. And then we have Numbers uh, 24.17. Um, get my Baptist uh, air conditioning going here. 2417, you have in uh, Balaam's fourth message, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. So again, you have this, uh, this prophecy of the, coming, uh, of the coming monarchy. And then the big one, uh, the really clear one, is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is the one uh, where we get we get the clearest statement. And I think also gives us an answer for why there wasn't yet a king. In Deuteronomy 20 or in Deuteronomy 17 verse 14 says, "When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us Set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. 
He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the, Levi, of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the left or to the right. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So uh, you have very specific requirements here for the king. Uh, and so there's an expectation of Moses that there would be a king. Now, a couple, couple things to notice. Uh, first, uh, the king was expected to handwrite the law. I think that's cool. Could you imagine uh, if every time uh, a new president was, uh, was inaugurated, their first duty was to sit in the Oval Office and handwrite a, cop a copy of the Constitution? That's basically what, what Moses is, is commanding here, is sit down, write the law. And the point is, I mean, we all know, if we sit and handwrite something, it kind of gets in our head, right? A, a, lot, a lot more deeply than if we just kind of scan over it. There's research. Um, you know, so this is, this is what, you know, one of the requirements. I just, I just think that's interesting. But the key here is verse 14. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it. Now, by the time of, of Samuel, uh, the people of God still have not fully taken possession of the land. They didn't, they didn't follow. Uh, they didn't do things the way God wanted them to do them. When... You know, you can go back and you can read uh, the story of Exodus. You can read through Joshua and over and over and over again, uh, you have just a, a failure of, of the people uh, following God's way in, in moving into the land. What God wanted to do was drive the people out himself, right? He wanted to move the people out. But what if the children of Israel, uh, they go to war. And they, they do things, they do things a little bit differently and, and it got hard and it got hard real quick as they, as they began their conquest. And so, uh, by the time Samuel rolls around, you know, they're still dealing with all these people, uh, all these non-Israelite, uh, peoples in the context of the promised land. So they really weren't ready yet for a king because they had not taken possession of the land. So the timing wasn't right. It wasn't time for them to have a king. And, and so the throne sat empty. Now, um, so I think, that's why, I think that's why we don't have a king yet uh, in, in Israel. And it's at this point that Samuel uh, comes on the scene, right? Uh, you have his birth. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, his mother Hannah was, was barren. 
And, uh, and so she's praying and, and, and sacrificing and, and coming, coming to worship in Shiloh. Um, and, uh, and she just keeps praying. She just keeps praying. And verse 12, it says, As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have, I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli, who is the high priest, answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. May your servant find favor in your eyes, she said. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord. They went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah, her husband, made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So you have this faithful, faithful, faithful mother um, who is praying. And uh, and she, the, the Lord rewards her uh, with, with this child, who she then decides to, uh, to commit to the Lord. Right? So she has this child that she's been begging God for. And, uh, and so what does she do? She, she decides that she's going to give the child back to the Lord. Uh, so after, the, after Samuel is weaned, it uh, says, you know, she took him and, and gave him uh, to Eli. <laughs> uh, you know, in Shiloh, where he is trained. And, and, and while he's there, uh, you have uh, in chapter 2, you get this picture of Eli's sons. They're awful, horrible, horrible men, uh, just kind of the worst, and and it's and it's bad. Uh, but in verse twenty-six of chapter two, it says, "And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people." Uh, and then, uh, you know, it just you get this, and then in chapter three, you have Samuel's calling. And uh, this is one of those great stories. Uh, you know, it says, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lied down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli, said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went down and laid in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And then you get the rest of his call. Um, but this, I speak, for your servant is listening. This really kind of marks, I think, the life of Samuel in the way that he, that he led the people of God. He was faithful and he listened and he spoke on behalf of God. 
Uh, and then you get some some tough stuff here uh, in chapters uh, four and five. You get uh, the ark. The people of God treated the ark of the covenant, um, you know, like it was uh, some talisman that if you, you know, rubbed, uh, brought it out to the the battlefield and you would win. It was just like a good luck charm. And God didn't like that because that's not what the ark was. And they disobeyed him. They lost. The ark gets captured. Eli's sons um, get killed. Eli, uh, he dies. And then you have, uh, you know, the ark is in, uh, is taken by the Philistines and set next to uh, their god, Dagon. Uh, and, and Dagon keeps falling face down before the ark, <laughs> which is just such a great story, right? Um, that, uh, you know, that the Dagon couldn't even stand. A statue of Dagon couldn't stand in, in the face of the ark, and so it fell face down. And it freaks the people out. They decide they're going to take, uh, take this ark back. And, uh, and finally, finally, it returns uh, there near kind of the end of, of chapter 6. And into chapter seven, uh, and then you have Samuel in, in in chapter seven. We get we get a little bit more of his story, right? Um, he acts as a judge. He's acting as prophet now. Uh, in First Samuel fifteen through seventeen, it says Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mishpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah. Where his home was, and where he also held, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. So you have this, you know, Samuel is this good judge. Turns out he was just as lousy of a father as Eli was. Uh, Samuel's sons turn out to be uh, just terrible human beings as well. Uh, but we get here now to the turning point, uh, chapter eight. It says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. They were bad dudes. And so the elders of Israel get together and say, yo, we need, we need something. It says, you are old in verse 5, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead. <laughs> such as all the other nations have. There's the turning point. Give us somebody to lead us, such as all the other nations have. What do the other nations' kings do for them? They lead them into battle. They lead them into war. They lead them into taking over other people and other lands. They, this, this, is, this really is the turning point really in the history of the people of God. I mean, this is, this is kind of one of those moments where it's like something bad is happening, right? It's like, if you were watching a movie, this would kind of be the point where like, after you're done and you're sitting around, you know, maybe at the restaurant talking with your friends about the film you just saw. And you were like, I didn't realize it, but that moment right there was that was that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. That's that's what uh, chapter eight verse First Samuel chapter eight verse five is. It's the turning point. 
In verse 6 says, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And now we start getting, we, this is where the rubber meets the road. The Lord said, listen to all the people, uh, to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And there's the deeper reason why they didn't have a king. The Lord understood himself to be their king, but they didn't know that. They didn't get that. They chose to reject God as their king. Verse 8, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So God in his grace is giving the people another shot. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is one of those mo gracious moments that I think sometimes we miss. Uh, God is saying, warn them, warn them. Here's, here, you, here you are functioning as a prophet, Samuel, Warn the people. Verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Verse 11, he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. If you heard that, would you want a king? <laughs> I mean, that sounds awful. I mean, this is this is God graciously warning these his people saying you don't want a you don't want a king that you choose. You want me as your king. I'm gracious, I'm compassionate, I'm kind. I'm not going to do any of this stuff. Right? But they say, what's the response? No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Up until now, who went out before the people when they went to battle? The Lord. Who fought their battles for them? The Lord. Now they say, we don't want you. We want a king that we choose so we can be like everybody else, so that we can look like everybody else. We want somebody who's going to lead us into battle. That's I have a question. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah, go for okay. it. Back in Genesis and Number and Deuteronomy, you talked about the expectation of a king. Mm -hmm. Is that just God's? Sort of like, I know this is going to happen, not that he wanted it to happen. Is it just like almost like a prophecy from God that there would be a king? I, I think so. And I, I think um, 
And I think we can come to that understanding based on, on God's interaction with Samuel here, right? Saying, yeah, me as their King. And, um, and so I think it's, I think it is kind of this, uh, this prophecy. Um, it can also, it could also potentially, you know, just, just be, I mean, Moses being, being worldly wise, knowing that, uh, these people were going to need it. They, they were going to want a King. They were going to need a leader. Uh, and that's just kind of the way things worked back then. Right. I mean, everybody had a King. So it might also just be showing Moses's own, um, just as his, his own, the, the reality that Moses was a man of his time and a man of, um, you know, a man of, of his own age. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so yeah, so it could be prophecy. It could also just be Moses. The expectation is, is once you settle, you have a king and that's what you do. So, cause all those passages, right. Um, uh, Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, they all come out of uh, what uh, at least conservative scholars believe are the books that were written by Moses. So it would, it would kind of make sense, I think. Uh, I lean more towards uh, the idea that Moses was a man of his time and uh, there was an expectation that he had. But he also had this sense of it needed to be the right time. And, uh, and it, they, at the very least, they were not yet at the right time. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so you have, uh, so you have this, this moment here and it's, and it's not, it's not good uh, because the people, the people wanted to be like everybody else. And that brings us uh, to to chapter nine, where Samuel anoints Saul. And we will pick the story up there uh, next week. But uh, the, thing, the thing to keep in mind as we walk through, uh, really beginning to walk through the history of the monarchy next week in full, is this phrase, uh, then we will be like all the other nations. Because that, that, I think, shapes the history of the monarchy, uh, maybe more than anything else. Um, and, and it's, it gets, it gets a little, gets a little crazy. So, uh, next week, we will dive into uh, really kind of a good chunk here of, of 1 Samuel as we, as we look at uh, the life of Saul and uh, kind of where where he takes the nation. So uh, as we wrap this up, do you guys have any other questions uh, from, from anything we talked about tonight? Mm -hmm. Okay. Not me. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is good. Well, this good. I'm glad it was helpful. Um, so uh, we, we get into Saul next week. And as we get into Saul, you're going to see some, uh, I think, some interesting theological things that that kind of come out of, of of this story. Some things that we begin to learn about how uh, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, worked uh, before Christ, and it gives us some some deep some deeper understanding of of 
some of the things that Jesus taught. Um, and I think we also begin to see what happens when, uh, when we, <laughs> when we go by, uh, our, our kind of human gut feeling on things, uh, as opposed to looking at things the way God does, because God looks at, at the world and things a whole lot different than us. So, um, so yeah, uh, so if you want to, if you want, you can kind of read through First uh, Samuel nine through like thirty one over the next few over the next week, uh, and that's that's kind of where we'll camp out next time. Well, we so, appreciate you taking the time to go through this with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Yes. My pleasure.